you. Hey, if you want to grab a seat, we, we are going to launch into a new, uh, a new book for the school year, and that's going to be the book of Hebrews. We're going to work our way start to finish over uh, the next eight or nine months. And so if you want to open up and get situated to there, and as you do, I'm going to pray and we'll get started. God, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you that we do stand equal before you. And that that's not because of who we are or because of our worth, Lord, but that's because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And God, I pray that we would always keep that in view. That the work of Christ would simultaneously help us to maintain humble hearts before you, but at the same time would also give us an understanding and an appreciation for the fact that your grace has raised us up. God, I pray that this morning as we look at your word, God, would you help us to see Jesus clearly this morning? God, would you help our hearts to treasure him deeply, to hold him in the absolute highest regard Every moment that we are alive, every thought that we passively sort of allow to slip through our mind, every breath that we take, Lord, would it be centered on and founded upon the greatness of who Jesus Christ is, we pray in his matchless name. Amen. Uh, I want to start this morning with, uh, it's a scene from one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's a scene that's always sort of caught my attention that I think about quite a bit. It involves Lucy, who uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, her character sort of represents this individual who's on a long spiritual journey. And she sees Aslan, who is the lion. Uh, He is the Jesus sort of uh, figure in the stories, not sort of figure. He is the Jesus figure in the Chronicles of Narnia. And he is shining, he's white, he looks huge and gigantic in the moonlight, and Lucy runs over to him and she buries her face into his mane and she gives him a giant hug, and as she's looking up into Aslan's face, she says, Aslan, you look bigger. And he replies, that's because you're older, little one. And Lucy's kind of confused and she still looking at him. She says, not because you are? He says, I am not. But every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. Every year you grow, you'll find me bigger. That is the picture of what one's journey with Christ ought to be. That every year we grow and we walk with Jesus, He looks bigger and bigger and bigger to us. He should look big and mighty and glorious on the day where we first recognize Him as sufficient Savior, where we see Him and by God's grace we receive salvation through faith in Him. He should look huge in that moment. And then every moment after that, that we walk with Christ, He should look bigger and bigger, and bigger. My question for you this morning is the same question that the author of Hebrews has for his readers, and that question is this. 
How big is your vision of Jesus? How large does he look to you? All of Scripture, beginning to end, Old Testament and New Testament, from Genesis chapter 1 to the very final word in Revelation, paints this picture of who Jesus is. With clarity, displays who Christ is and how it is that our affection for Him should grow over time. But I'm not sure any book of the Bible puts the magnifying glass on the greatness of Jesus Christ quite like the book of Hebrews does. And so over the course of the school year, we're going to work our way through this book, and I have one prayer, and that prayer is that our hearts and minds would see the enormity and the grandeur of Jesus Christ, that He would loom larger and larger in our hearts and minds, not just year over year, but week over week, day over day. That is where we are headed. We're going to start that in the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1 this morning, but before we read those, I want to give a little context to the book of Hebrews. It's the most researched book of the New Testament, and the reason for all of that research and all of that study is because there are some uncertainties about its context. For instance, there's uncertainty as to who the author of the book of Hebrews is. For many years within the early church, It was assumed that Paul was the author of Hebrews, but by now that's more or less been uh, pretty much discarded. It leaves this question as to who actually penned this book of the Bible, and there is a list of various authors that scholars ascribe the book of Hebrews to. Paul, we've already said, Barnabas, Luke, Apollos, Silvanus, Philip, Priscilla and Aquila, Jude, uh, Clement of Rome. Those are just some of the names of who scholars have put forward as to who possibly wrote this. But we do know some aspects of this book's authorship for certain. First, we know that it was inspired and written ultimately by the Holy Spirit. Second, we know that what we have before us as the book of Hebrews is likely a sermon manuscript rather than a standard New Testament epistle. The reason we know that is because it doesn't match the form of what a first century letter would have looked like. For instance, there's no greeting. There's no statement of who's writing. Those are standard features of Old Testament letters. And so many scholars believe that instead what we have here is the manuscript of a spoken sermon from a pastor theologian who was brilliant. The book of Hebrews has a more eloquent and uh, sort of advanced form of Greek than any other book in the New Testament. There are 1,038 unique Greek words in the book of Hebrews, and 169 of those are only used in the book of Hebrews. The individual who wrote this was incredibly, incredibly smart, and they were incredibly well-versed in what is known as the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It finds its way into basically every crevice of the book of Hebrews. We don't know the exact audience. Who was this sent to exactly? The best guess is that it was sent to a group of Jewish Christians in Rome, likely in a small house church there. The reason for that is because of all the Old Testament uh, allusions and quotations that the recipients must have been very well versed in Old Testament writing, therefore likely Jewish. We also know, thanks to certain contents of the book, that those who received this word of encouragement were struggling with intense persecution and were wrestling with whether or not they wanted to continue to persevere and to walk forward in their faith. 
exact dating of the book is a little bit of a challenge. It's hard to pinpoint, but there are hints in Hebrews chapter 10 to the persecution that took place under the Roman emperor Nero. That happened in 64 AD, so most scholars say that the book of Hebrews was likely written in sometime between 65 AD and 80 AD, somewhere in that chunk. Here's what we know for certain. The theme of the book of Hebrews from beginning to end is about the supremacy and the finality of Jesus Christ. That message rings out from beginning to end. In fact, the author makes it abundantly clear in the opening sentences of the book. And so if you've got your Bible open, go ahead and read along with me the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Again, the question this morning is how big is your vision of Jesus? What we're going to see as we work our way through this are eight aspects, eight different um, qualities of Jesus' nature. Four of them have to do with his divine nature. Three of them have to do with, for lack of a better term, his cosmic nature, his nature in relation to the universe. And one of them is about his sacrificial nature. So we're just going to work our way Start to finish in these four verses. First, Jesus is revelation culminated. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We typically think of God's grace in terms of his work to save us, but we should also consider God's grace in his continual work to reveal himself to us. The very fact that a holy God would self-reveal to a sinful and broken humanity who, if left to their own devices, would literally want nothing to do with him is a great act of grace. That God, over time, would speak so as to display himself to a humanity that willingly, knowingly, and oftentimes joyfully walks away from him is an amazing act of grace. And God's revelation of himself culminates in Jesus, who's a better word than any other word that's ever been spoken by a God who has been speaking since creation. His speaking has always worked to fulfill his purposes. God speaks to create the universe and it springs into being. God speaks to create a people for himself and the Israelites from the womb of an old and barren woman, become more numerous than the stars in the sky. He speaks to create a law for his people to follow in worshiping him. He speaks to create fear in the hearts of those who oppose him, as well as comfort in the hearts of his often haggard and beleaguered people. He speaks all of this to fulfill his purpose, and that purpose is to display his glory to the ends of the earth. And those purposes find their fulfillment in Jesus. When God speaks to create the ultimate display of His glory and His grace through the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah on humanity's behalf. 
As the author of Hebrews says in verse 1, that speaking has happened at different times and in different ways. God spoke to Adam and Eve face to face in the garden. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush. He whispered to Elijah in a still small voice. He spoke to Ezekiel in visions, to Daniel in dreams. He appeared as an angel to Jacob. He's spoken to his people through laws written on stone tablets, warnings given by passionate prophets, and exhortations from desperate leaders. But he's spoken most distinctly, most clearly, and most definitively through Jesus. And what's interesting about the way that God speaks is that his speaking is always disruptive in a way. He speaks into the chaos of nothingness and disrupts it into order and to the universe. When he speaks, he disrupts the comfortable life of Abraham and begins to move him forward to a different land. When God speaks, he disrupts the power and the complacency of the Egyptian kingdom with acts of unfathomable majesty over the forces of nature. When God speaks, he disrupts the normal order of family lineage by making the youngest of Jesse's sons the mightiest of Israel's kings. When God speaks, he disrupts the resting bones of dead men and women and raises them to life. When God speaks, he disrupts Jonah's running away, Hosea's plans for divorce, and Israel's thoughtless and sinful worship of false gods. And all of that purposeful, different, disruptive speaking, the author of Hebrews reminds us, culminates in Jesus. When God spoke in Jesus Christ, he not only disrupted, but he destroyed the very powers of darkness that separate holy God from sinful humanity. When God spoke to your heart and called you to Jesus, his word, the Son, ought to have disrupted the sin-stained, sin-loving, sin-pursuing trajectory of your life and unleashed within you a transformative power that's only available by the spoken word of God. A more eloquent word has never been spoken than Jesus Christ. And so my question this morning, how big is your vision of Jesus? The author goes on, tells us that Jesus is the matchless son of God. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. This is what we typically think of when we think of Jesus. He's the son of God, the offspring not of a natural human origin, but of divine creation. Born into the world in a manger in Bethlehem because there was no room for his family in the local inn. He's entirely human and yet utterly divine, existing in one matchless, unique, arresting individual. We celebrate that every December at Christmas. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Word of God. Those are aspects of His divine nature. And now, starting there in what is the second sentence of the second verse, the author of Hebrews turns to the cosmic nature of Jesus. And he does so by first racing forward into eternity's future. And he says that God has appointed Him, that's Jesus, heir of all things. Jesus is the premier inheritor. At the end of all things, it will be Christ who is standing and all things will be his. We were just told that Jesus is the son of God and sons are heirs, correct? That's the way 
traditional society operated. And so it makes total sense that Jesus would be the heir of all that is God's. And what is God's? Everything. All of it. As king of the universe, every atom on this planet, in this galaxy, and across the universe is his. Every blade of grass in the savannas of Africa, every particle of dust or sand in the Sahara Desert, every fish in the sea, every animal on land, Jesus is going to inherit all of it because he is the Son. And the Son inherits what the Father owns. But get this. You know who else inherits what the Father owns? The Son's bride. Everything that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. And everything that belongs to the Son, He lovingly shares with His bride. That bride is the church. And that means, as Scripture says, we are co-heirs with Jesus of all things that are God's. At the end of all things, it will be Jesus standing there. And in one hand, he will, be hold, he will be holding all things. And in the other hand, He will be holding the hand of His bride, the church. And just as He is the premier inheritor of all things that are God's, so too will His bride inherit all things. How big is your image of Jesus? When you think of Jesus Christ, do you think of Him literally standing, holding all things because they are His? Because that's who Jesus is. And from eternity's future, the author of Hebrews rushes now back into the vastness of eternity's past. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. Jesus is the eternal Creator. Just as at the end of all things, it will be Jesus standing there holding everything. At the beginning of all things, it was Jesus standing there creating all things. The word that in the CSB uh, that's translated universe is the Greek word ionos. That is the plural form of the word ion, which means ages or forever. So if you were to transliterate from Greek straight to English, that phrase, it would literally be to say that God has appointed Jesus heir of all things and made the forevers through him. When we think of God as creating, we think of all the physical stuff that we can see, that we can hold, that you can grab with your hands that's tangible and visible. But the reality is that through Jesus, God created all the very essence of time necessary to hold the physical stuff. He created the forevers through him, the ages through him. John 1.3 says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, Yet for us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, all, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1.16 for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. All things are headed to Jesus, and all things began with Jesus. How big is your image? How big is your vision of Jesus Christ? 
Look down in the middle of verse three. We're told that the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. We'll come back to those. But after going to eternity's past and eternity's future, we're told that in this moment, Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is the mighty sustainer. Right now, at the present moment, it is Christ that stands and upholds all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. That tree outside the window behind me. In this moment, sustained by Jesus. The babies in the nursery over there, sustained by Jesus. Your 18-year-old that you sent off to college a couple weeks ago that you worry about every night, sustained by Jesus. The sun in the sky, the stars that you see at night that are a billion light years away, those are sustained by Jesus. All of it for all time at all times. Sustained by Jesus. And he never gets tired. He never stops. He never gets distracted. He never turns his attention to something else. And so imagine to a group of persecuted, hassled Christians in Rome. The author of Hebrews says, don't forget. Jesus is sustaining every proton, every neutron, every electron in the entirety of the universe. He can sustain you in your persecution. And so this morning, I would say to you, don't forget. He's sustaining all things. And so if you walked in in the middle of a brutal season of life, He can sustain you. He's never going to get tired. He's never going to stop. He's never going to turn his attention to something else. He's going to uphold you by his powerful word. How big is your vision of Jesus? Because sometimes I think our vision of Jesus is smaller than our vision of our circumstances. And we get overwhelmed because we forget that Christ is sustainer. He's not just sustainer. He's also creator and inheritor. Consider this with me. Think about Jesus on the cross. A crown of thorns smashed down on his head. Blood dripping from his brow. It was Jesus Christ through whom the very plant that gave rise to those thorns was created. It was Jesus Christ that sustained that plant with the water and the sunlight necessary for it to grow. It was Jesus Christ who created and sustained the Roman soldier who took those thorns and twisted them into a crown and then shoved it upon his head. It was Jesus Christ who created and sustained every individual and the breath in their lungs that they would use to mock him while on the cross. It was Jesus Christ who created the saliva in the mouths of those who would spit on him as he carried his cross up to the hill. It was Jesus Christ that caused the sun to rise on the morning upon which he would hang on the cross. It was Jesus Christ who created the earthquake that tore the veil in half and also told that earthquake, you can go this far and no further. It was Jesus Christ who, as he proclaimed, it is finished, was sustaining the world that he was simultaneously redeeming, that he also created, and that he will also inherit. 
how big is your vision of Jesus Christ? That big? That his relationship to the universe is that he is just the Lord of it. He is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He holds the whole thing in his hands right now, and he also created it to be in his hands, and it will be given to him one day. That's how big Jesus is. The start of verse 3, the author of Hebrews returns to Jesus' divine nature. He tells us that the Son is the radiance of God's glory. That word for uh, radiance, as it is in the CSB in some translations, is, is uh, translated as reflection of God's glory. We know that the sun still exists even though it sets because when the moon comes up, it reflects the light of the sun. So we know that like the sun didn't disappear. Moses came down from the mountain after receiving the law and the Israelite people are frightened by him because his face is glowing. Why is it glowing? He's literally reflecting God's glory. Radiance there is a better translation. I'll tell you why. Because the word actually means dawning, that the sun is the dawning of God's glory. That with the coming of Christ was the physical, visible, tangible dawning of the glory of God. That like the light of the sun sort of cresting over the horizon and casting light over the landscape before the actual sun itself is visible, that is the sun. S-O-N, reflecting, radiating, dawning, the exact, unending, unmarred, perfectly holy glory of God. We can't look directly into the face of God. Scripture tells us that if anybody were to do that, they would die. That's because we are sinful, but we don't need to look directly into the face of God because we can look directly at the sun who is the dawning, the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus, all the fullness of the majesty of God's splendor on display. Think about it. In Revelation, we're told that in the new heaven and the new earth, there won't be any need for the light of a lamp because the radiance of the sun will give light to everything. That's the glory of God radiating out of the very person of Jesus. Why does Scripture talk about Jesus as the light of the world? Well, because in Jesus is the dawning of the light of God's glory arriving on earth. It radiates out of His very person and causes darkness to flee and to tremble. Why do demons cower before Jesus? Why do they run from His presence? Well, because glory has dawned and it radiates out of Christ. You think your sin is too much for that Jesus to bear? You think that person in your family or at your workplace or at your school or your neighborhood is too far gone for that Jesus? For the Jesus who causes demons to run into pigs and down a hill and into the bay? You think that sin is too dark 
for the light of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ to cast it out? You think the darkness in this world is too dark for the light of the radiance of God's glory through the person of Jesus Christ to be put to rest forever? Then your vision of Jesus is too small. How big is your vision of Jesus Christ? He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Jesus' divine character exemplified. The image here is of a stamp. It's actually of like a, a die that would be used to cast a coin, but because most of us have never seen that process, think of a stamp. You might, not the stamp on, a, on an envelope, but the stamp that you might use to put your address on an envelope. The stamp you might use if you're a teacher is your grading papers, or if you're a notary, or if your kids have stamps and they just like to play with them. That kind of stamp. You know how it works. You've got the stamp piece in your hand, and on the bottom there's an image. You've got an ink pad in the other hand or on the table. You take that stamp, you put it in the ink, you pound it on the paper, and now you've got a perfect image there of what was on the back side of the stamp. That is Jesus Christ. One essence with the Father, and yet a distinct person who is the exact image. That's how the Trinity works. Of one essence, three distinct persons. Jesus is the exact expression of God's character. And that means this. When you open up the Bible and you read the Gospels and you see Jesus healing people, that's the exact expression of God. When you open up your Bible and you see Jesus reaching out to the outcast or touching a leper or interacting with a woman at the well, that's the exact expression of the image of God's character. When you see Jesus move to compassion for the crowds that surround him, that's the exact image of God. When you see Jesus commanding people to go and to sin no more, that is the exact expression of God's character. When you see Jesus teaching the wonders of the kingdom of God or calling people to repentance or challenging the false teaching of the Pharisees, that is God's exact image. When you see Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple with righteous indignation because the house of worship has been turned into a den of robbers, that's the exact expression of God. Jesus on the cross suffering and extending mercy and grace to sinful humanity. Jesus telling the thief next to him that he will be with him that day in paradise. Jesus begging his father to forgive his executioners because they don't know what they do. That's the exact expression of the fullness of the character of a holy, righteous, eternally perfect God. Whatever it is that we see Jesus doing, we are looking upon the perfect expression of the character of God brought to life before our eyes in human form. That glory has dawned among humanity. And it is the distinct, definitive, perfect picture of who God is. Last one. End of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is sacrifice finalized. Look back through this with me. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
God has appointed him heir of all things, made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Revelation culminated. Matchless Son of God, eternal creator, premier inheritor, sustainer, the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, and all of those are ongoing and continuous until you get to the end of verse 3, where purification for sin is past. It has been done, finished, completed. Jesus did that on the cross. The author wants you to see that. He made purification for sin one time, and it is over and finished, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That goes back into present, ongoing. Jesus is at the place of honor. And that sitting down matters because an Old Testament priest could never sit. Their work was never finished. Sacrifices had to be offered again and again. The blood of animals had to be taken to the altar over and over. One priest lived and died. Another one took his place and on and on and on it went. And then came Christ who offered himself one time. And all sin was forgiven. And now... He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And what he's doing on your behalf is pleading your innocence. His blood washing us clean like bleach on dirty sheets. He's overpowering, overcoming, overriding the reality of our sin with his finished and finalized work of sacrifice. When he cried out, it is finished, he meant it. And he'll rise from that seated place one more time to come back and put a full and final end to sin. But until then, you can guarantee that he's seated at the right hand of majesty on high, pleading your innocence, interceding for you, projecting his righteousness as your covering. How big is your vision of Jesus? Because verse 4 tells us how big it should be. He became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Your image of Jesus should be that he is better. Better than anything. Better than the best word you've ever heard spoken. Better than the most beautiful thing you've ever laid your eyes on. Better than the best human image that you've ever seen. Better than any angelic being that's ever graced the presence of the throne room of heaven. Better than a 60-point Chiefs win over the Jacksonville Jaguars. (laughs) He is better. And he has a name at which the knees of all humanity will ultimately bow, either in eternal worship of him or in final recognition that he was just as great as the Bible said he was. That is who Jesus is. He is bigger and better than your mind can fathom or your heart can handle. But the life of a follower of Jesus is to be one that strives to see him as big as possible for as many days as you've got until you stand before him face to face and see just how glorious he truly is. Revelation culminated. Matchless son, premier inheritor, eternal creator, mighty sustainer, glory personified, character exemplified, sacrifice finalized. That is who Jesus is. And so I ask you again this morning, how big is your image of Jesus Christ? These are the words we sang when our service started this morning. 
the firstborn over all creation, far beyond all imagination. All visible and invisible things bow before Christ our King. The Godhead dwelling fully in Him, yet crucified for our salvation. So incredible, indescribable God, O Jesus Christ, Lord of all. The radiance of God in person, beyond all human explanation, once invisible, now a visible God, O Jesus Christ, Lord of all. Sing, O sing, as one. Come and join the angels. Come and join the song. The melody well known from beginning of creation to the end of kingdom come. Jesus is better. And may our vision of him be one that is always bigger. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. You can stand up.